For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. What if a change in classroom practice could lead to change in reading outcomes? What should reading instruction include to ensure all students have the opportunity to succeed? What does cognitive science tell us about learning to read? And why aren't those learnings applied in our classrooms? Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert from Amplify Education. Join us every two weeks as we talk with Science of Reading experts to explore what it takes to transform our classrooms and develop confident and capable readers. Joining us today is Emily Lutrick, longtime educator who currently serves as a pre-K through five curriculum coordinator and K-12 dyslexia coordinator in a mid-sized district in Texas. In our conversation, we talk about dyslexia, what it is, risk factors, some of the myths associated with it, and ways educators can support student dyslexia needs. Such a timely discussion. I know you'll enjoy. Well, welcome, Emily. We're so glad that you joined us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you and talk just a, have you talk just a little bit more about dyslexia. But before we do that, we'd love to know a little bit about you. What do you do and why do you love it so much? Sure. My name is Emily Lutrick and I'm excited to be here today to talk to you um, and talk with you about a couple of things that I'm very passionate about, the science of reading and also dyslexia. Um, I am entering this my 19th year in education and um, I've been very lucky to work with educators not only in Texas, which is where I reside, but also around the nation. Um, And I just find it to be an an incredible journey that I have been on over the last 19 years. So I currently do reside in in Texas and I work in a mid-sized district in Northeast Texas, just North of Dallas. Um, We have about 20,000, 30,000 students in our our district. And I serve as the pre-K through fifth grade ELA coordinator Um, curriculum coordinator. And then I also serve in the role of K-12 dyslexia coordinator for the district. So I have both roles and try to fulfill those to the best of my ability each and every day. Um, One of the things that I love about what I get to do with both of these roles is um, have direct impact on readers and writers across our district um, each and every day. So not only through the development of 
um, strong, effective curriculum in those grade levels, but then also development of a program that's helping identify some of our most at-risk readers and writers and helping guide um, the educators and practitioners that are working to make sure that, that we are supporting each of, our, um, each of our students to reach their goals. So um, I feel like I have great impact and, and that's a pretty awesome thing to get to go, go to work every day and, and feel that way. Yeah. Wow. Those those are two. I mean, one of those roles in and of itself is a big role, but two of those is pretty incredible. It's a big, big, big gig. Let me let me say there's um, <laughs> a lot that, as you know, a lot that goes into developing an effective, coherent, structured curriculum, especially when it comes to the world of ELA, um, which we're also very passionate about. And so trying to really bridge the needs of our educators, um, our administrators, and then of course the students is quite a task. And then you add the dyslexia layer, which um, in Texas has become quite a topic um, of discussion and something that we have been addressing for over a decade here in the state. But as you know, around the nation is um, very much a, a topic of conversation and what we're doing to not only identify those students, but then support them effectively does make make for busy days. Yeah. Yeah. And more and more states across the country are really recognizing um, they need to pay attention to this and do something very specifically about addressing those needs for those students. Yes, it's been a wonderful trend that we've seen over the past three years, especially um, a focus on not only identification of students who could be dyslexic, but backing that all the way down and, and really identifying those that could be at risk. And then more importantly, what what do you do to intervene as early as we possibly can? So I, I'm passionate about that. And I think it's a shift that's great for um, great for our students and yeah. not just going to make stronger readers and writers, like, like I said. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, what's interesting is that we've actually really known about dyslexia since the late 1800s, like it was formally documented, I think in the British Medical Journal. Um, and then they talked about it there that these were students that were experiencing unexpected reading, yes. reading difficulties. And so there's still confusion about, I mean, even after all that time and after all we know, there's still some confusion about what dyslexia is. Ooh, I can't even say it. Yeah. Um, how would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? Like what's fact and fiction as it relates to dyslexia? Yeah, that's a great way to kind of uncover some myths about dyslexia. There's um, because it, it is it is a reading difficulty that has been around for a long time, but has not had a lot of attention or focus necessarily, depending on where you are in the country. Um, there, there's just, and also I think also because it does impact so many so many people um, anywhere, depending on what research you read, anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the population is likely experiencing some reading difficulty due to um, dyslexia or, or risk of dyslexia in some some form or fashion. And so because it does impact so many different people, um, I think that we we continue to uncover what we know about it. And so there's now some myths, some things that are not so true that we know now are not true, but we're trying yeah. to still uncover ways to make sure that everybody knows what dyslexia is and what it is not. So um, the fact fiction thing is, is a great way to kind of dig into, in reality, what does this really look like in, in learners? Yeah, and I mean, I know we share something common, which is we both have a child that was diagnosed with dyslexia. And 
at, at the point that my son was going through the struggle, I thought it was all because he mixed his B's and D's and he wrote things wrong. And that's like not even not true, a, right? Like there's right. so much more. Yeah. And that is something I, I do here, not only where I am from in Texas, but also working around the nation. Um, many times whenever you have a child, especially those early learners that is reversing B's, D's, um, C's even, and, and numbers as well, people do tend to want to jump to, well, that's dyslexia. That has to be dyslexia. And actually reversing letters and numbers um, is a very, it's a very age appropriate thing for our students. Some people say through the end of first grade, I tend to actually go a little bit further and think it, it, it's even developmentally appropriate depending on the child um, into the beginning of second grade. I think you start to see when a child still is reversing letters in combination with other difficulties, that's when it could be, you would want to maybe look and see what types of what types of issues the child is having, what types of risk factors the child could be experiencing. But just a simplistic reversal of letters, that's a very age appropriate and developmental thing for many of our learners. Yeah. What, so what other myths are out there that people might associate with dyslexia? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, that one goes into what, what is it then, right? The, the idea behind if it's not a reversal of letters, then what, what, is at the cause of dyslexia. And so that really goes down to that. I try to make sure in simplistic terms, working with educators and parents around this issue, that dyslexia is primarily, it's, it deals with phonological processing. That's a really fan, fancy word for the ability for a child or an adult or a learner in general, their ability to match up and analyze how our speech um, is broken up and how it relates to letters on the page. So for instance, a really simplistic example of this is um, if a dyslexic thinker might, many times they don't process the letters the way that we do if you don't have this, um, this issue. So for instance, the word he, um, I see H-E and I understand the sounds that each of those letters make and I read the word he. And then in my mind, I know what, what the, that vocabulary word in, in what it means, right? And I make a meaning right. of the word and I read connected text and it, it causes great joy because I can read and understand what he is doing <laughs> in the text that I'm, <laughs> I'm working with. But a dyslexic thinker and that brain of that child or the adult that's struggling with dyslexia they likely could be associating that E, the letter E, with the wrong sound. For instance, they might, instead of that, that letter making the E sound, it might, to that child, make an A sound. And so when they see the word he, they actually are reading the word ha. And that, that's a pretty simplistic example of how distorted reading becomes um, whenever you have a, a disconnect between mm -hmm. what you're processing and what you're seeing and how you're spinning it back out. So um, it's not just about reversing the letters, it's actually how the letter is associated with various sounds, how the symbols and sounds relate. So, so that's one. Um, another another uh, myth that we run into quite often is, is it possible to identify our students um, or identify students who are at risk of dyslexia um, 
early, right? That I run into that a lot. Like how, how early is too early to be screening for risk of dyslexia? How early is too early to identify risk of dyslexia in students? Um, we, I think the reason this continues to come up in conversations around the nation is we do have legislation that's now starting to pass that's supporting us in um, screening for risk early and trying to identify those early early um, warning signs for dyslexia. And so some people, the myth is still out there that it's not, we're not able to screen early for risk of dyslexia, which is, is false. You can screen effectively for risk of dyslexia very early on, um, as early as kindergarten. And some people even stretch that to say even before kiddos start to learn to read and just at a basic level, pre-K level of understanding that you can even identify some level of risk there and intervene appropriately. Um, so that's a big myth that I still am trying to unpack with um, the educators and the districts that I work with, um, that you can screen early and you can intervene just as early to help close those gaps. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the amount of legislation that's going through in the states all about uh, making sure that we do that screening early. So that's really, you know, hopeful to see that more and more of us will understand what that looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then when when you're talking about, you know, this idea of misunderstanding about dyslexia, I mean, I could see that misunderstanding happening with parents. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, they wouldn't know so much about dyslexia, but I th I, I'm going to guess that there's many teachers that you work with that are less familiar with dyslexia and, and how to address it. Yeah. They, yeah, that's, you know, we have as, as practitioners, our educators have so much that they are responsible for each and every day um, from implementing curricula to understanding the social emotional needs of each of their students and um, supporting every child in their classroom um, to meet the goals that have been set out in front of them, no matter what grade, no matter what subject, it's a, it's a giant task that we ask educators to, to stay on top of every day. And then you add in these other things like research-based best practices and um, how you, how we should be doing this type of instruction versus this type of instruction. And then you yeah. add in on top of it, um, you also have students that struggle and either have an identified specific learning disability or are at risk of um, difficulty. And we're also expecting educators to know all of the things that go around that as well. Yeah. And so dyslexia is one of those things that, um, yeah, it's a big, it, it impacts a lot of students and um, being able to understand some, just some basic things. I have found that working with educators across the nation, um, it's sometimes, it's sometimes easier to think about this in terms of let's, let's think about what, if you have a student that's struggling, which we all do in every classroom across, across the nation, what are some things you can look for that are easy to kind of earmark as that could be a risk indicator, right? Mm -hmm. Or that could be a risk indicator. Because if you have a child that's already been identified with a specific learning disability of dyslexia, then you're going to have some supports in place. You're going to have um, case managers and, and different people that, that dyslexia therapists, cults, different people that will be able to help provide intervention. But it's really where I find um, a big piece of my work to lie is to help support educators in knowing what risk factors to look for, yeah. if that makes yeah, sense. That, 
Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I know both as a parent of a child with mm -hmm. dyslexia mm -hmm. and then a teacher in the classroom, just the word is frightening, I yes. think, sometimes to, oh, no, I don't have never been trained in this as an educator or as a parent. I don't know anything about this. And it just feels like a really scary word. Um, and so if we can help people <laughs> understand how to recognize that risk and do something about it, I think that alleviates at least some of that fear. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So some of the things that um, some of the things that I think are helpful is to you have to kind of bucket um, risk factors into okay. early elementary and then later elementary. And of course, secondary is a whole nother beast. And we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah. um, I think that something sort of switches over in second or third grade to where the sometimes even at the end of first grade, where you start to see some kiddos that um, especially with dyslexia, you start to see kiddos that are, they're picking up on the skills. They start to, they're readers, right? And a lot of them are writers, but there's something still causing that's a barrier and you can't quite uncover that, right? So I like to bucket the way we look at readers and writers in terms of identifying things to look for in terms sure. of risk for dyslexia in two different buckets. Early elementary, those, those basic skills. If you, if you run, if you're a kindergarten teacher or a first grade teacher, and you have been providing your students with opportunities to um, understand the way that our language works through systemic and systematic um, explicit instruction around letters and sounds and, and how words are formed and how those words make up sentences and um, exposing them to text and how they connect these things that you're learning to reading connected text. Yet you still have some students that are struggling with some basic skills like rhyming um, mm -hmm. or struggling still to really master every letter and the associated sounds with those letters. Um, and they're, they're possibly even struggling to identify numbers correctly. Um, those are kiddos that I would, those, those are kiddos I would, I would be looking at and seeing, you know, is there, is there something that I want to dig into there? Those can be some, some risk factors. And, and that's IDA, which is the International Dyslexia Association has a whole list of, common risk factors that you can look for. But those are those are kind of the three that seem to be easy for us to, those are things that we do every day in kindergarten or first grade classrooms. We rhyme, we work with words, um, we identify letters and sounds, we manipulate those sounds and words. And if you have a child that just continues to struggle with those skills after being provided the opportunity to at least learn them through the curriculum, uh, they, they those would be students that I would wanna look at. and. Um, some kids, it takes longer and you, they might not start to develop some of those skills until later in first grade, but they, they can get it. And then we have students that no matter what we're trying, for some reason, there's still a barrier and they're just not able to learn all of those letters and sounds, much less put mm -hmm. them together to read words. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I'm going to stop you there, yeah. but that's, that, that's sort of built on the assumption that they're getting that kind of instruction in kindergarten and first grade. Sure. And so in other words, if you're not doing systematic and explicit phonics in kindergarten and first grade, there is a possibility that we 
wouldn't identify those kids in those grades. Right. We definitely want to figure out, um, it needs to be a part of your curriculum um, for sure. And we want to figure out if, if you have a child that is struggling to read and we are not, you're not sure what is causing that, um, that issue, back down and start to see, can they, if you, if you have not, if the child has not been exposed to explicit systematic instruction around these basic foundational literacy skills, phonemic awareness, alphabetic principle, phonics, then back up and see, um, are they having difficulty rhyming? Let's go all the way down to the very bottom, right? And yep. can, yep. can the student rhyme? If not, let's close that gap. Um, next, can they identify their letters and sounds and can they start to blend and manipulate those sounds in words? Um, those are all skills that you would want to check on and see, especially if they have not been exposed to explicit instruction around those. Sometimes that's all it takes is identifying that they, they are having difficulty with it. And then let's provide them with explicit systematic instruction and close those gaps. And then many times we can prevent further risk. So it might not be dyslexia. It might just be exposure and um, application of those skills. And then um, we're able to close the gaps. That's why when we, if we get to in a minute, we can talk about screening for risk, but they go hand in hand. If you're, if you're identifying students who are having some risk factors, you're ultimately screening them for risk, (laughs) whether you have a formal way of doing that or not. Right. (laughs) Right? You're identifying that they're having difficulty and I need to figure out what that difficulty is. My word of advice um, is be intentional about identifying what that risk factor is. We generalize too much and say they're they're not reading on grade level or they're struggling to read, uh, but what is it that's causing mm-hmm. that breakdown? And for early elementary, you got to go down and go systematically back through that that development of skills to really see can they rhyme? Can they yeah. identify initial sounds? Can they identify um, final sounds? Can they manipulate sounds into and blend words and segment words and do all of those things that they need to do to manipulate um, um, the text in front of them? Well, for older readers, I would imagine you may have to get to that point as well, right? To yeah. go all the way back. Absolutely. So later elementary, and by later elementary, I mean, I mean for many of us, that means fourth, fifth, sixth, but I'm, I'm talking even starting second grade. Um, okay. One of the things I look for at that point, in, in when you're thinking about risk of dyslexia in particular, I think many times we do see some students that are reading. They're reading. Um, and they're, they're maybe not reading for pleasure. <laughs> um, they might have some avoidance there, but sure. they're reading. Um, and a lot of times these kiddos in, in second, third grade, they can decode single words. Um, they might have some trouble. Sometimes I see difficulty recognizing sight words, but one of the things that I find to be really powerful to look for is can, if you have a child in second grade or third grade or fourth grade even that um, is struggling. They're struggling to read fluently. They're struggling to, to have, um, to be able to think metacognitively about the text that you're interacting with for some reason or another when it's, it's somewhat, um, I don't necessarily love to use the unexpected term, but it's not kind of unexpected for this particular student. You know that they've got the ability there and something's just blocking them. I love to check and see, um, can they decode nonsense words? 
Oh, okay. Because if I, if I give the child a nonsense word, do they have the skills to tell me, to figure out what that nonsense word is? Because for a child that is struggling and is at risk for a reading difficulty, many times every word is a nonsense word to them, right? Sure. And yeah. we need to make sure they have the skills that they need to attack it and figure out what it is quickly um, systematically so they can move on and read fluently. Right. So yeah, for that those, that's, that's just one of those things that if, if I were, if I'm working with a, with an educator and they're like, I just, I can't figure it out. I said, well, can they read nonsense words? And they're like, well, we don't read nonsense words. And I said, okay, but do here's a list. You can pull up online. You can type in nonsense words and pull up lists of nonsense words that are age appropriate and see, does the child struggle to make sense of those words? Do they have the skills necessary to break the word down and decode it? Because if not, then that would be a kid that I would want to go back just like with the early elementary and really figure out, hmm, do they know their letters and sounds? Do they, can they rhyme? Can they blend? Can they segment? Even when I take the, the letters away, can they do that auditorily? Do they have phonemic awareness, you know? Um, and if not, I want to fill those gaps as quickly as I can. Um, and then also be looking at possibly, do they demonstrate some other common risk factors for risk of dyslexia? Cause that, that would be a child I would, um, I would want to look at. Those kiddos also are usually stellar um, comprehenders, if that's even the right way to say it, when it comes to listening comprehension. They, sure. um, those students, if you read aloud or they're able to um, listen to a story online or you're doing a read aloud in your classroom and they're able to comprehend and answer and follow along and think deeply about those, those exposures to text. And so that's another thing I look for in the mm -hmm. older students is do they have the ability to um, comprehend during an auditorily read experience versus what is that, what is the difference between that and their comprehension whenever they're doing it on their own? Ah, makes sense. That makes sense. What about for those kids then you, you mentioned, like even in high school, mm -hmm. that feels really scary. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but something that we need to we need to make sure we are focusing on and providing just as much attention to those struggling students as we are any of these, any of the other kiddos, kindergarten up. Um, our, what's interesting about the secondary world is many times these are your kiddos that are in some form or fashion advocating for themselves. They, ah. um, we, we find that to be true across um, our area and then also as I talk with educators across the nation um, that are talking with students they these are students that are reaching out and saying this is why does this take me so much time to do this or they're telling their parents this why is this so hard this should not be this hard for me um, we we tend to say a student in the secondary world that avoids reading could be at risk. But to be quite honest, I mean, I have a 15 year old living in my house and she avoids um, <laughs> reading and writing yeah. and really lots of things, right? Washing clothes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lots, lots of things. So I tend to go a little bit beyond that and try to um, work with our secondary educators to think about the time it takes for students to complete tasks in reading and writing. Does it, if you have a student that 
knows what they're doing, they can verbalize, they can talk to you about when you're conferencing with that reader or that writer, they're able to tell you what they need to be doing. But then when it comes to producing output, it takes so much time. They aren't getting things turned in. Um, they're having difficulty learning their foreign language. Um, those would be some risk factors that we would need to look at uh, for the secondary, secondary population. Um, yeah. And their intervention looks pretty different as well. <laughs> Yeah, I bet it does. Yeah. And what about those secondary students that maybe they know something's wrong, maybe they don't know something's wrong, but they're really like start to avoid or, mm -hmm. you know, not even to show up to school. How mm -hmm. do you how do you recognize that it potentially might be dyslexia for those kids that seem really disengaged? Yeah, it's a um it, I, I hope that our systems have structures in place for bringing stakeholders together to have conversations when you have a child, that that is what starts to happen the older that they get. Yeah. We see it start in um, ninth grade, you know, 10th grade. We start to see changes in behavior. And I encourage districts to ensure that they have some sort of system that can bring the people together that are working with that student to talk through what could be at the cause of this and look beyond the look beyond the test scores because many of these students could could likely be a and b students and pass state assessments but mm -hmm. for some reason they're avoiding they're not taking advanced placement classes they're um dropping back to an on grade level class or what there's lots of different signs that you could be looking for that just maybe simply takes having a conversation with the student and and why what is so hard you say school is hard or I've heard you say this I can't get this work done but what is it behind that um, and if you start to hear things like I it it's too hard for me to read and write I can't get onto the paper what I'm trying to to say those are signs for me that I typically would recommend if I was in a meeting like that that we would want to look and see if there was something behind it hmm. yeah it's um you know with all of the movement now with the early screening we just hope that we can put systems in place so in the future that we won't there won't be so many kids at the secondary level that actually fall through the cracks like that absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. So this, this podcast is really all about the science of reading. How does this issue of dyslexia actually relate to the science of reading from your point of view? Sure. Um, well, with once you have a child that has been identified at risk for dyslexia, um, for any of the reasons that we just talked through, or you have a student that is has been identified with a specific learning disability, um, specifically dyslexia, those students, more than anything, um, what that particular type of learner needs, whether at risk or identified, they need um, explicit, systematic instruction around foundational literacy skills. Um, in a structured literacy environment. The IDA, the International Dyslexia Association, talks about this in terms of um, structured literacy. And basically what that means is that we 
are providing the student with the opportunity to learn in a sequential, explicit manner the skills that they need to learn to make sense of text and to do something about that as a reader and a writer. And so that requires us to be explicit and intentional in how we are structuring the learning for these students, no matter what their age. Um, which sounds sounds easy, but it's not. And and what's tricky about dyslexia is there's not one particular program out there that will do everything that we need for every type of uh, every type of student that is at risk for dyslexia or dyslexic. Um, you've got to arm yourself with good, strong core curriculum, and then in addition to that, make sure that you are informed about what it means to teach in a structured literacy environment, um, which goes back strong and strongly connects to the science of reading. Um, so they do go very, very hand in hand. And, and um, yes, they go, they go very hand in hand. Let me leave it at that. Yeah. It, and it's, I think it's another myth too, maybe not to mm -hmm. backtrack too far, but this idea that, uh, dyslexic kid A needs mm -hmm. the same sort of support and intervention, as you will, as dyslexic, dyslexic kid B, right? So there is differences in this continuum of dyslexia. Holly, yes, that's a, it's a, it is a, it's a great point, and it is something that I think everybody is still trying to figure out um, and work through. But um, as we gain information and understanding of dyslexia and we broaden obviously with with each and every passing year in the research that we gain on a particular topic you, you broaden your understanding of what this looks like in various learners and so that then does mean you have um you have you have to meet needs in lots of different ways and so you're right it, i think um in the past it we might have been much more inclined to say, okay, here is this particular um, therapy and it works and that's what that's what these students need. But we know that not every learner is the same. And so I do go back to um, the idea of, of structured literacy instruction and just the basics of that effective systematic teaching of foundational skills. So um, if you're doing those things, no matter what tool you're using, um, you'll, you can, you can meet the students where they are. Right. And some kids can go fast and some kids have to go much slower. And that's not something we've always understood about, um, dyslexia either. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. no matter what structured literacy is the binding piece there. Yeah. Well, and then, so just this idea that if, if a kid is lucky enough to get some good, strong intervention in school, mm -hmm. um, they're working really hard at school. And so what advice would you sort of give schools to help both, you know, the teachers and the parents understand how then that kid could be supported after they leave their school day and, and go home? Sure. Um, yeah, our kiddos are exhausted. Uh, we work them hard all day long, and um, many times when they get home, that is their safe place to kind of let let go, right? And you would, yeah. we want that. But um, I will tell you, and you probably have these same experiences with your kiddo. Um, the last thing you want to come come home and do is then 
have a big fight about how to get this work done, right? And I I never like to end my evening that way. I don't like to start my day that way. And we go to bed as parents questioning what we just did when <laughs> yeah. we've we've ended up in tears, right? right. Um, both of us, the kid and the parents. So um, I I highly encourage educators to think about that, not just not just for students that are at risk for dyslexia or have dyslexia, but also those in general. But um, you know, be be very mindful that your students that are struggling with risk of difficulty, they need those parents are going to need to understand that they can they can have a child listen to a book on listen to an audio book and that is just that is beneficial um they can instead of doing a a 20 word spelling list um pick the the pattern that you're working on in terms of your orthography lesson and just have the child work on three or four words for that particular pattern that week instead of trying to memorize 20 words that that likely they're not going to remember after the test anyway um so i just try to encourage our educators to think about what can be lifted off at home and making sure that our parents are aware of the things that they can be doing to take some of that lift too. Still making sure that our kids are accountable and that we want it to be a family effort as much as we can to work on some of these skills, but that um, at the end of the day, crying because we can't get through the tasks that have been assigned if, if they're being assigned to be finished at home um, is not going to ultimately benefit anybody. Yeah. That might That's not be so the popular true. thing to say, but that is where I am. I am passionate about that because of my own kids and as a parent. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we really appreciate this time that you were able to talk with us, Emily, about this really, really important topic. And I like to always end by asking you, what's one thing you really want our listeners to take away from this discussion? Something you want everybody to know about dyslexia? Sure. Um, I think I would like for us to collectively um, ensure that we are looking at every student. So, so many times we have a group of students that are successful, quote unquote, based on criteria that we've laid out, right? Whether that's um, that they get B's or maybe even they get B's and C's um, on their report cards. They, they pass, quote unquote, pass assessments um, that we're providing to them or, or asking them to complete. Yet, and I think all of you listening to this can relate to this, you run across a kiddo every now and then that there's just, it's just what, why is it so hard? Why mm. does, why do we have to work and reteach this five times and then and then we get it why is this child no matter what their age having to work so hard at this hard work is grit is important but i always like to look at that hard work and really figure out um many times we say oh they're lazy or they're just not wanting to work hard enough but is it really that please take a look at all of those students i think we that, that is what I would like to leave everyone with is look at every student and see, is there something behind the mask that is there that I, as their educator, owe them to look at 
and dig into and figure out, is it something as simplistic as making sure that they actually do know all their letters and sounds and that was yeah. it and they're good to go? Or is it something more complex that I need to dig into as their practitioner? That's what I want to leave everybody with. This is disguised. Dyslexia is disguised in many, many different ways. And um, it's one of those things that we have to task our with, tasks, task ourselves with to really look at every individual student um, as if each one of them is critically important, which we all believe or we would not be in this profession. Absolutely. That is great advice, Emily. Well, thanks again so much. I appreciate it. It was a, a joy talking to you today. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading, the community, or send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert from Amplify Education.